Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaid.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, David. Hi, I'm David, compulsive overeater. Um, I found out that I was speaking like seven minutes before the meeting, so um, I don't know where this is going, but I think that's a good thing because I, uh, when I know where it's going, um, I think I know how to get there. And um, you know, I'm just so grateful for my life today. I had six and a half years of abstinence. My abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. I eat three meals a day. Um, I call my sponsor every day. I have sponsees who call me every day. And um, I'm really in the center of the herd. I do service. Um, I wake up. I hit the the ground the first thing I do. I meditate every day. And, um, you know, I speak at a lot of meetings, and none of that matters because all I have is right now. And um, only in this moment can I get treated from the disease of compulsive overeating. None of that time matters. None of those experiences matter. None of the times that I've sat in a park with my sponsor reading step work matters. Like, all that matters is, am I connected right now to a power greater than myself? And am I living my life connected to that power? And that's what I strive for today, you know? I strive for that spiritual perfection where I can live a life where I'm connected to a power greater than myself in every moment of my life so I can have that power solve every problem that I have. And um, I live on this planet for a long time without feeling connected to anything greater than myself. And because of it, I was very scared all of the time. And, um, you know, I don't like talking a lot about what it was like, but I like looking back to remember um, how far I've come and, you know, looking forward to see how far I still have to go. I grew up in a town called Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island. my dad was a doctor and my mom's a psychologist and they drove the right cars and we lived in the right house and we said the right things and we wore the right clothes and we looked the right way. Um, but inside the house, you know, both of my parents are alcoholics. They've been in and out of the rooms. Um, my dad is this big 300 plus pound guy and on the street, if you saw him, you would love him and he'd say, hey, Dr. G and everybody knew him and everybody loved him. But inside the house, inside our house, there was abuse and alcoholism and affairs and drug addiction um, and every man for themselves, like screaming and strangling and my dad chasing and like really crazy growing up in Cold Spring Harbor and living with alcoholism and like a rage addict who was beating, you know, me and my sister. And, you know, how I grew up. It's connected to today because I still have the same triggers and they're still rooted from when I was five years old. My mom um, is a therapist and everybody loves her outside of our family. Like everybody, (laughs) you know, just a side tangent. My sister throws these like spiritual summer camps every year. And um, my mom is like the camp mama stay. And people go into her like bunk 
um, because this is like a camp, a five-day camp of like healing and spirituality and opening and heart opening. And a lot of people who don't have a program go to these things and they're like broken open. And they go into this bunk with Mama Stay and Mama Stay like heals them. So I go to this camp every year and people are coming up to me being like, your mom is incredible. She is so safe. She holds such space. Like, you are so lucky. And I've learned over the years to say, you know, you make me maybe right. <laughs> but that's not what it was like growing up. Because growing up, my mom would take off for a month at a time on a vision quest to India and leave me and my sister with my dad, who would chase us through the house and strangle us. And really, the first memory I have of childhood, you know, is just abuse. My dad throwing my sister up against the wall and me being like the Al-Anon, trying to like break it up and make it okay, and then me getting hit. And um, when my mom would get back, we would tell her, and she would just deny it and say, like, that didn't happen. And she would see it, you know. She would be seeing the abuse. And I remember, like, screaming and begging for her, and she would, like, go into her room. Like, she couldn't, she couldn't deal with that reality. She was so stuck in her own reality that, like, she just couldn't do it. Um, and it got really bad, and it kept getting worse and worse. And one day, my dad was raging through the house, and I crawled into bed with my mom, and he's, like, banging on the door outside. And I said, we have to go. And she said, I know. And I said, we have to go tonight. And I don't know, like, looking back, I don't know how my mom did this, but she, like, woke up. She, like, snapped awake. She's like, I know. We packed up at 3 in the morning. We moved across Long Island. Um, and the next week I was going to a different school, and, you know, I quickly testified against my dad. And um, I didn't talk to him for 15 years. And, you know, for me, like, my compulsive overeating really didn't begin when I was living in the abuse and the chaos because I was just trying to, like, survive. Um, it began when I was seven years old, when my parents got divorced, and my dad would follow my bus home from school and then would, like, see me and then drive away or would, like, show up, like, in the bleachers at sports practice, and I started living with, like, real anxiety um, that he was going to, like, take me and, like, kidnap me and my sister, and, like, I had no idea. But I lived in anxiety all the time, and I didn't know how to deal with it. Um, and living with anxiety is different than living in chaos. Like, I can do the chaos, but the anxiety that chaos is coming is, like, worse for me. Like, the thing that, like, something bad is happening around the corner, I can't do it. Um, and, like, at the age of seven, I started eating. And, like, when I ate, the anxiety stopped. Like, it says in the big book, like, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but we drink because, you know, we enjoy, you know. For me, it, eating wasn't good times. Eating was like, I have to deal with this anxiety. And when I did it, it made it go away. So, like, I needed to eat a lot and a lot and a lot. And um, I quickly became the fat kid in school, and I got picked on. Um, most of my, like, early childhood being the fat kid, I was, like, 60 pounds overweight. Um and I had all the nicknames that the fat kid has, and, you know, I just hated myself. And, you know, they say in the big book, it talks about the alcoholic mind. Like, I had the alcoholic mind before I, I picked up the actual substance. Like, I always had that warped mind that just, like, told me I wasn't good enough and told me the abuse was because of me. And, um... 
like told me it was all my fault like I'm just not enough and I would go to school and just like feel like I was so not enough for other people and I didn't know how to like look people in the eye like still today I'm almost 30 years old it's still hard for me to like really look someone in the eye and hold a gaze like it's hard for me to do that but like growing up I couldn't look people I like walked head down all the time I didn't raise my hand in class like I was a real like compulsive overeater shudder in stuff it down um, I got tested for being mentally challenged like they didn't know what was wrong with me they called me a mute boy in school um, what was wrong with me is like I grew up in alcoholism and you know abuse and I don't have a voice and I don't know how to access it like that's what was wrong with me but I didn't know what was wrong with me I just thought I had a food problem and I kept eating the food and I kept getting fatter and I kept getting picked on more um, and it was just like a horrible existence, like growing up and watching your friends get into relationships for the first time and, you know, hanging out. Like, I just didn't get the life. I didn't get the childhood that I saw my friends getting. Um, like, I still don't even know how to ride a bike. Like, there was a lot of, like, innocence that I didn't get to experience as a kid. Um, joy. Like, I didn't know what joy was. I don't know what being a child was like I didn't have that experience of like I don't know I don't my idea of a childhood is like running around in leaves and like not worrying if your dad is going to come home and like beat you and uh, my dad did like it kept getting worse he would like there was a restraining order put against him and he would like come to my house and it was just me my mom and my sister and you know, when I was seven, my mom, when we moved in, my mom said, you're the man of the house now. And I didn't, I was like, whoa. Like, I don't even know how to look people in the eye. I'm the man of the house. Like, I don't know how to do this. And my dad would come and try to break in. And I would, like, swing a baseball bat as, like, a 10-year-old and, like, protect him from my mom. And the cops would come. Like, it's crazy. Like, how did I live through that? Like, even now, I'm so sensitive like if someone gives me the middle finger in traffic like it ruins my day I don't know how I like survived like an abusive father who was like coming and trying to kill us um, but I had the food that's how I survived because whenever I got scared I would just eat over it and I would eat over it and I would eat over it and um, you know I would come home after school like this I remember once I came to school after Christmas break and everybody was singing the baby beluga song to me. Um, and I was like, what is a beluga? And I remember walking, I don't know why, I walked like a mile to the library after school. And um, I like got a children's book about, and it, sa it said something in the book like baby belugas are miniature wells that get up to like 5,000 tons of blubber or whatever. Whatever it was, I remember shutting the book and being like, oh, they're all making fun of me. Um, and I remember even when I got skinny and even when I got to like a healthy body weight, when someone would smile at me on the street, in my head it was like, oh, they're, they're making fun of me. Um, everybody's like in on some secret about me. And my sister also suffers from this disease and we had connecting wounds growing up and she's a little bit older and I used to hear her throwing up at night. And she would like bag the throw up and go downstairs and like drop it off and I would like cry. Her pain. Like I'm a real before coming into program, also a very untreated Alamon. Like feeling her pain in my bed and like crying for her. 
Um, but she lost like a ton of weight really fast, and I wanted what she had. And I went into her room one morning, um, and that's the thing of like growing up for me in that type of ism and alcoholism and like there are just no boundaries. Like every room is open for me. Every draw, every you know sex toy. Like I went through everything. Look like because I needed to know that I was safe. Like I needed to know that I was okay. So like I would just go through draws and you know go into my mom's room and look through things. But I went into my sister's cabinet and I found her diet pills. And um, I was like 15 years old. I was like a sophomore in high school. And what started with one diet pill um, when I was 15, by the time I was 16, I had lost 60 pounds. I was taking 10 hydroxycut a day um, before like the FDA took all the good stuff out. And I um, transferred high schools to a different high school. And nobody knew me as the fat kid anymore. I was now skinny and a diet pill addict and starving myself and throwing up and a three-sport athlete. So I'd wake up in the morning and I would work out and then I'd starve myself all day and take diet pills and then exercise, you know, go to sports practice and come home and eat like a piece of celery with like blunda on top. Like that was my day. And, um, I turned it, you know, it's the same disease. It was the same thing. Like, in my mind, my mind changed from, like, I'm fat, I might as well keep eating, to I'm skinny, I have to go to any length to keep it up. Pendulum just swung to the other side, but it was the same thing. And um, for me, my disease became life or death when I became a bulimic. Because it stopped being just about gaining weight, it started becoming about life more pills, more fingers down the throat, I gotta find a bathroom, I got, and I started, like, my mental insanity as a bulimic went crazy, like, counting numbers of calories, and, you know, I knew calories to, like, weird objects, like, I knew everything, it was all numbers, it was all a numbers game, I knew how many thousands of calories were in a jar of peanut butter, I knew, like, how long I would have to go to the gym to exercise off that candy bar, like, it was all in my head all the time, um, and I was trying to go to college, like, I went to five different colleges in four years, just, like, always running and binging and purging and starving and new diet, and, you know, the thing is, like, I, my mom was always the, like, hippy-dippy, and the great thing about growing up with her is I grew up, like, understanding spirituality and, like, drum circles at her house, and, I started meditating, like, since I was a kid, I've been meditating. Like, even in my worst compulsive overeating, bulimia, and, like, alcoholism, I was going to, like, do, like, meditation retreats and, like, seeking. I, you know, I knew that something was wrong with me. I was just, like, I didn't know how to access it. And um, I hit my bottom. It was either Thanksgiving or Christmas of 2008 or 2009. And, um... I took the ferry with my family to my best friend's house. We spent, like, every holiday together in Connecticut. And um, I had been a vegan that year. And <laughs> I got drunk before the dinner even started and ate the whole turkey. 
<laughs> and went upstairs to my best friend's, and you know, went upstairs to my best friend's bathroom, and started just like purging on the floor and throwing up. And like I remember, just like the face was out to here, and I was looked in the mirror. There's a sinker downstairs, and like if you're a bulimic, you know, like the paranoia, like they they know, like they're they were watching me, they're they're listening. Like, how do I get out of this? And, like, I showered, and I came down, and there were, my friend lives in, like, this nice house with this nice dining room, and everybody was, like, waiting for me. And I came down the stairs, and my mom looked at me, and she's like, what's wrong with you? And in that moment, I didn't have a moment of clarity. I looked at my mom in front of this, like, big holiday dinner, and I said, you're an effing um, word for, like, the person who goes in the street and, like, sells themselves. I was told I'm not allowed to swear. Um, Because my mom, in my, I didn't, it took me getting into program to, like, see what I was doing, but, like, somehow in my mind, I blamed my mom's affair on my dad for my dad's, like, abuse. And if my mom didn't have the affair, she wouldn't be to blame. So somehow I was blaming my mom for all of my problems all of my life, and it all came out on Thanksgiving dinner and, um, like, shocked everybody. And they sent me home. They were like, you, you know, I took the ferry back to Long Island. Um, it was Christmas because I remember I was the only one on the ferry. It was like snowing. And I remember looking in the bathroom mirror just being like, there is nothing for me anymore. Like, I'm 20 years old. Over, always as a kid, like seven years old, I was like, that. it's just too hard. Like, life was always too hard for me. Um, but I remember being 20, being like, I'm failing out of college. I've never had a girlfriend. I haven't seen my dad in a decade. I hate my mom. I can't stop binging. I can't stop purging. And I want to die. And in my mind, it was like, all right, it's over. Like, I'm going to kill myself. But, like, somewhere in my mind, it was like, but I can have one more binge. So I went back to my mom's house on Long Island, and I'm, like, binging through her house, like, the best binge you can think of. Um, Yeah, it was Christmas, because I was eating leftover Halloween candy, and, like, eating, 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 and my mom's, like, women's gummy chocolate vitamins, like, I was eating, I was eating, there becomes a point when you cross the invisible line, and I'm not eating to get high anymore, I'm eating to die. And that's where I was. I was eating to die, and like, because it's over, so I'm just going to keep shoving it down. And um, I went into my mom's pantry. My mom's a therapist, so like every self-help book you can find, every, anything, um, the OA 12 and 12 fell out. Like, this book fell out onto the ground while I'm binging. Like, I had never even heard of Overeaters Anonymous. And um, the miracle is not that it fell out. The miracle is that, like, in my binge, because every binge I've ever had up to then, like, you couldn't stop me. Like, there was no stopping me. But in that moment, like, something allowed me to bend over and pick it up. And um, I went into my room, and I closed the door, and I read the preamble. And I'm not someone – I'm not, like – And I've never been, like, a real sentimental, like, that song changed my life or that book changed my life. But, like, I read the preamble, which I had never 
this was all new to me. It was like I was an alien coming across like ancient literature. And it said, Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. So that line, it's like if I've been compulsive overeating my whole life and I think that I'm the only one on this planet who's dealing with this problem, this was like finding the jackpot. Like, this is the lottery. Like, how... I literally thought I was the only person on this planet who had this, like, compulsive overeating thing. And I'm reading this line that says, like, there's a, a place for me to go to recover. That's like saying, like, I have cancer and there's a place where I can go to get better. Like, this line changed my life. And um, I remember... Like, I read that line for, like, a couple months, and I didn't do anything about it, and I was still getting worse. And I went to my sister's apartment in Manhattan, and I said, I'm a compulsive overeater, and I can't stop binging, and I can't stop purging, and I want to die. And she printed out the Manhattan um, OA list, and the next week, the next day, uh, I went to the Sunday 4.30 anorexic bulimic meeting on the Upper West Side, and um, I felt a power in my life for the first time, really. Like, and I didn't have a white light, like white light experience. Like, I felt the power of like peace and serenity for that hour. And I went home, and I went to town over it. I had so much food. I had the biggest binge, because for me, it's like I'm not. I don't deserve that. Like, even today, when good things are happening, like, I want to, like, I don't want to sabotage them anymore, but I want to, like, quiet them. Like, I don't deserve that. Um, so I have to, like, dip my toe in. So I kept dipping my toe in, and I kept going to meetings, and I started going to meetings every day, and it took me two years to get abstinent. And, um, wow, a lot of time. Uh, it took me two years to get abstinent, and... You know, by miracle, I moved out to L.A., which was, for me, the, you know, they say geographic to geographic, but, like, it was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. I moved out to L.A., and I started going to meetings every day, and, um, you know, I started hearing, find someone who has what you want. But, like, as for me, as an untreated Al-Anon, as an alcoholic, as a compulsive overeating, I, like, what I want is not what's good for me. Um, at the time, because I'm, I had my pickers broken. You know, nine years ago, my picker was, I, what I wanted, I did the J-Day thing. I wanted a successful, straight, white male who's like in his 30s, who's in the entertainment industry, who drives a nice car, who's married. Like, I don't know, I had these credentials for my, for my sponsor. Um, and I found him, and then I asked him to be my sponsor, and he was full. Um, and then I binged over it, and I went back into, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough for these people, um, and I kept sharing about it, and this woman came up to me, um, at the 8,000 Sunset meeting in the morning, and she said, I'll sponsor you, temporarily, um, and for some reason I said yes, and that woman was, um, in her, like, 50s or 60s. She was African-American. She didn't have a job. She had never been married. She didn't have kids. 
everything that I wanted, she was the opposite. <laughs> and she didn't have a car, so she would take the bus. She would take the bus like every week to Culver City and meet me to do the set. Um, and she's no longer in program, but like I worked the 12 steps with her for the first time, and I got abstinent the first day that I started working the set. And um, I remember the first time I ever shared at a meeting it was kitchen sink. Well, the first time I ever shared at like a big meeting it was kitchen sink, and she was there. And we went out to coffee after, and she had a hard life. Like, she was up against it. Um, like, everything that was, and I learned why I said yes to her. It's not that I want someone who has what I, it's not that I got to get someone who has what I want. It's, it has to be someone who I can be honest with and share, like, my deepest, darkest with. You know, they say you don't got to dance with everybody, but you have to dance with somebody. Like, I really had to find that one person who I can just drop everything on. And she took it because she had been that crazy, too. And, you know, after that kitchen sink meeting, she said something like, um, she said, all my life I've been, like, um, questioning why God, like, never allowed me to have children and watching you up there, like, made it all worth it. And I was like, but I don't know. Because it says in the big book, like, we have the total inability to form true partnerships. And, like, in OA, it's where I, I started learning how to do it. Like, I started learning about intimacy. I started learning about, like, trust. That was my first year of abstinence. Like, I started learning what it meant to really show my heart to somebody else and, like, receive love back. And, um... You know, so I've been abstinent six and a half years, and, you know, for me, it's about the steps. And it's not about the steps, like, I got to do them, like, homework, um, so my sponsor will approve of me. It's learning how to apply the principles of the 12 steps into my life in the day that I'm in. So I am powerless over food. And really, it's about steps one, two, and three for me. I'm powerless over food. I'm powerless over food. So for me... The only application of any of the steps that I can do perfectly is find out what my alcoholic foods are, and I don't eat them no matter what. So I don't eat white flour and white sugar no matter what. And that's how I work the first part of step one. I'm powerless over that, so I put it to the side. I have a physical allergy to certain foods. When I put the foods inside my body, I can't stop eating them. My allergic reaction is I just want more and more and more, and then the food has me. It's got me in its grip, and I can't stop until it, you know, spits me out. So I don't go near those foods at all. But then the next part of step one, my life is unmanageable. That's my thought life. That's my thinking. That's the alcoholic mind that I had before I ever started eating food. You know, thinking as a five-year-old, like if I jump off my grandfather's balcony, then all of my problems are going to be over. But then my next thought, but nobody's going to show up at my funeral. Like, those are the thoughts that I had, you know, that are warped, that today, um, you know, there's a statistic that neuroscientists say we have 77,000 thoughts a day, but addicts have four thoughts that we think about 77,000 times. <laughs> and for me, like, my thoughts have changed dramatically over the last nine years. Like, when I came into OA, it was like, I'm the biggest piece of, like, I'm worthless. I don't deserve anything. I'm like so.
scum of the earth. I'm a horrible person. Um, and those four thoughts have changed, and the volume of my negativity has gone from like a 10 to a 2. Like it's, it's very quiet today, but still my negative thoughts are rooted in I'm going to lose something that I have, or I'm not going to get something that I want, or I'm not enough. Like my not enoughness drives me um, into unmanageability. Like I have a mind that just talks to me, and it talks to me with great authority, and I listen to it. And it talks to me in the same voice that God talks to me. That's like the cunning and baffling. The cunning and baffling thing is not the food. The food is just energy. The cunning baffling thing is like how my mind works to like get me, like hijack me. It like has its tricks, and it'll get me. And it'll, like, hit me with the same language that, you know, I hear God in. And it'll tell me that I'm a loser. But it won't say, you're a loser. It'll say, you're a loser. Like, you're just not, you're not enough. And I start listening to it. Like, yeah, you're right. Um, So if I have 77,000 negative thoughts a day, that's what I go by, I have to come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore those thoughts to sanity. I need a little bit of right thinking, and I have to pray for that. Like, I'm not someone who can just pray in the morning and go on with my day. I've had to learn how to access that power into my prayer life every single moment of the day. And I do, and I ask for help all day long. God, can you protect me from my mind? Can you help me have a new thought? Can you help me have a new experience? Can you help me be a giver and not a taker? Like, I don't even realize that I'm being selfish. I don't realize that I wake up in the morning and think about me. And it's not selfish like I'm going to go steal a car. It's selfish like self, you know, self-preservation, like I'm scared. I don't think that if I let go, absolutely, I'm going to be taken care of. So my mind wants to control the show. My mind wants to control the show everywhere I go. If I can just send another email with the manipulative, you know, manipulative language, like maybe my boss will realize how good I am. Or if, like, I can just, you know, if I can just, like, I have 15 items at Trader Joe's. If I can just, like, make the bushel of bananas count as one, then I'll get through the line. But, like, the thing is, everywhere I go, I'm the manager of my life. I'm the 405. Like, people just aren't driving fast enough. They're not checking me out quick enough. At Starbucks, like, my career isn't going fast enough. Like, things are, I'm just never where I want to be. And it's rooted in the five years old. I'm scared that if I stay where I am, I'm going to get hurt. Like, I'm just never where I want to be. And I have to bring power into that and say, God, can you help me be where I am? Can you help me accept this moment absolutely? Can you help me enjoy my life? I don't know how to enjoy my life without a power running my life. I wake up in the morning with my girlfriend, God, can you help me feel this love? Because I can quickly go into I'm not enough. Can you help me feel this love? Can you help me feel like I'm enough? Everywhere I go, I bring this power in. And um, the more that I do that, the quieter my mind gets. And when I, you know, I work with a lot of people, I have like a lot of sponsees. But the amazing thing about working with others is you get to see other people's manifestations of their thought life and action. And people don't in my experience, they don't go back to the food because of how did I get here? The food just called to me. The mind calls to the food. You know, what was the thought that preceded the first drink? You know, therefore, this disease is centered in our mind and not our body. 
like my mind, if anything, is going to tell me that one bite is going to make it better. And that's why I end up in the food. It's not because, ooh, the food is a magnet, and there I am in the refrigerator. Like, I have to watch my mind. I have to change my mind. Because the more that I change my thoughts, the more, like, reality gets better. So the more I bring that power into my thought life, the quieter my mind gets. And then a new voice emerges, which for me is, like, the power of step three is, like, the emergence of a new voice. And it's in my gut, and it's my intuition. And it talks to me with great authority. And if I listen to it, my life becomes amazing. And I didn't even know anything about intuition. I didn't know anything that there was another voice other than the voice in my mind. I didn't know that I can access like a voice in my heart that will tell me where to go. But they say, you know, the hardest trip you have to, the furthest trip you have to follow is from your head to your heart. You know, so I have to do a lot of praying to get out of my head and into my heart and into my body so that I can follow my gut and follow my heart and realize that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Because when I'm back in my heart, like, it's all good. I can accept this moment absolutely and know that I'm completely taken care of. And um, I try to the best of my ability to live my life following that power of my heart. You know, it's said in that thing, like, the language of my heart. It means, like, I have to live not in my mind, but in my heart. And, you know, another thing to step three is, like, I have a lot of things in the third-dimensional world that take me out of my body and back into my mind, like Facebook and certain foods and the radio. Like, there are lots of things that I've had to get self-honest and say, is like, is this making me feel more connected? Is this serving me? Why am I doing things in my life that isn't serving me? Why am I going on Facebook if it's making me feel worse about myself? I don't know. I'm sure that's an outside issue. I'm sorry. But whatever. But, like, why do I do these things that don't make me feel better? So I give them to God, and I learn that when I give one thing away, a better thing comes in. And I trust that. And I trust the simplicity of my life today. And I trust that, like, I can live a quiet, prayer-based life today and have all my needs taken care of. Um, you know, Overeaters Anonymous, like, has given me, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. It's the fellowship, it's the steps, it's the meetings, it's the phone calls. It's all, like, for me, gone into this, like, one power that I can access inside of me. And um, that power is what allows me to stand up in front of 75 people um, when I couldn't even raise my hand in the classroom. And that power is what allows me to show up for my life today, you know, seven minutes ago before the meeting, learning that I'm speaking. Like, I can do anything when I'm connected to that power. Like, I lose the sense of, like, I'm just not going to be okay. I'm not enough. Because I have, like, this power now. It's like a superpower almost. It's awesome. Like, program is not a bad, like, what I get here is like a superpower. Like, I can really plug in and be more productive and more loving and more tolerant and more connected than I would ever be if I didn't have program and was living a life without a power. Um, I've made amends to my dad after not talking to him for 15 years. And um, we had a couple years of, like, a great um, relationship. But, like, the thing is, 
program to me is like more gets uncovered and now I hate my dad again. <laughs> and I realize like I gotta shine God back into that relationship. Like I'm always looking for areas of my life where like I'm just not shining enough light there. I hate my mom again. You know, my mom's in India again and she's sending me these like two page texts that make no sense <laughs> about running water and you know but for me it's not about that it's about like I want a mom can I have a mom yet can I have a freaking mom yet do I need to get these texts Does it, do I need to be the parent of my parents my whole like freaking life and what I learned is, like, no, I don't have to. It's a choice. I'm not a victim anymore. I can bring a power into that relationship and find some compassion for my mom because she's 70 years old and she lives alone. And she still needs her kids to validate her. Like, oh, my God. I can find love for my mom again. I can find love for my dad because my sponsor used to tell me, you know, true love is when you forgive someone who's hurt you more than you've hurt them. My dad used to suck me into garbage cans. Like, it wasn't good growing up. But I can say, oh my God, how sick do you have to be? And how awesome of a parent am I going to be? I don't have to be the victim anymore. I can see the opportunity. And, like, the greatest thing for me is if I didn't, if I had two amazing parents, I wouldn't have found, like, the amazing family that I have in Overeaters Anonymous. I have the best friends, the best brothers, the best sisters, um, mother figures, father figures, you know, uncle figures. Like, I have everything that I need here. Um, I've been parented in Overeaters Anonymous. I've grown up here. Um, and now I get the chance to, like, help other people who are young and coming in, and I can do for them what was so freely given to me. Um, I love my life today, and it's not because I have the life on the outside that I want. It's because I have a quiet mind, and that's all I ever wanted. I just wanted a little, be little bit of peace and a little bit of stillness, and um, I'm just so grateful for having the opportunity to just get up and show up and suit up one day at a time and access this power one moment in my life at a time. And um, thank you for letting me share.